Well, amen. It is great to be back with you today. And uh, we are diving into a, a book of the Bible called the book of Numbers. And the book of Numbers is about how to survive and how to thrive in the wilderness. And in order to maybe appreciate what wilderness feels like, what it looks like, my wife and I were hiking in uh, Timnah, which is southern portion of Israel years ago, and I have a picture of what wilderness looks like. So there's our group coming down the mountain. You just see it's barren. It's rugged. There are not a lot of resources available to you for as far as you can see. And I got to tell you, the last uh, two weeks have felt like wilderness. So thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your thoughts and texts. It was just traumatic. So my son had a strep, ultimately, which uh, gave him pneumonia. And uh, as many of you know, I have a 12-year-old son, 12 and a half now, who has uh, autism, all kinds of sensory issues, and trying to, trying to help my son, who hates masks and stickers and tubes, you know, not yank them out was just uh, impossible. But the, the worst was the emotional trauma of my wife and I watching him just beg for his life for four days. And express any only way he knew how that he wanted help. Just hearing, uh, help me, Dada. I want help me for four days. And then we uh, had to get a tube in his lung to empty out what ended up being half a gallon of uh, gunk. I'm sitting there waiting for him to finish his. Uh, his surgery, and Beth and I are finally getting a, a little something to eat, and I get a call from another doctor because my other son, who's had a long-term medical issue, is telling me about the terrible news that happened to my other son. <laughs> and uh, I came home that night, and uh, Beth and I were swapping off which night we were in the hospital and uh, just uh, sobbing. Um, just saying, God, I feel so hopeless. I feel so uh, out of control. And I'm, but, but I'm trusting you. you know, I'm trusting you to be in control here and for you to work in the midst of this. And, uh, and I'm just uh, amazed to tell you that um, you know, 90, J- J- Quinn's up to about 90%. And uh, he's home since Tuesday and, and is uh, healing well. And tubes are out of him. And he even roller skated around the kitchen. So that's pretty good news. So, so thank you for your prayers. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. So keep praying for my other son. It's a long-term issue, so it's not as immediate, but just keep praying for him as well. Um, so how do you, how do you uh, thrive and survive in the wilderness? That's what we're going to talk about. And part of thriving and surviving in the wilderness is knowing what kind of wilderness you're in. There's different types. In the book of Numbers, as we study it together, we're going to find that uh, sometimes you're going through the Sinai wilderness. And we're going to spend, uh, we're going to see the Israelites spend two years there. And this is really the wilderness of preparation. God's been promising you things for 400 years. Promised land's coming. Promises from God is coming. And we're going to use this wilderness time really just to prepare you to take hold of some incredible things God has for you. And it's during this time that God's preparing you for some incredible promises. He says to you, um, I want you to count on my presence in the center of your life. I want you to learn to depend on me, prepare for me, trust me as we go into battle. And it's actually a great wilderness. 
And I'm hoping that's a wilderness I'm in, that what God's preparing us for is setting this year up for incredible promises from God, and I hope you're there too. Then there'll be a couple chapters where people will travel around, and then we'll end up in the wilderness of Paran, what I call the wilderness of testing. And this is going to happen over and over again, which is God is going to give you a choice when you're in the wilderness of testing. Are you going to choose the rumble of the grumble? Is God really good? Can I really trust him? Is he really faithful? Am I going to choose the rumble of the grumble or the attitude of gratitude in the wilderness of testing? Am I going to trust God is still there? I don't understand his purpose. I don't get what's going on. It looks like wilderness. But God, I'm trusting you with an attitude of gratitude. Because if you don't, what we're going to find as we go through the wilderness of testing is God's like a good coach. He comes out and he's like, all right, one more lap around the wilderness, guys. And they'll take one more lap around the wilderness. They'll come to the exact same circumstance about water. All right, guys, what are you going to choose this time? Rumble the grumble or attitude of gratitude? The rumble the grumble. One more lap around the wilderness. Forty years of laps around the wilderness. We're going to try and shortchange that and learn how to have an attitude of gratitude. Then we're going to spend some time in the, uh, the wilderness of Moab, which I call the wilderness of temptation. Whether you're tempted to get angry or to sulk or tempted for sensuality or power or to control things beyond your control. It's here we're going to learn that when we come to temptation, we often see what we want to see and hear what we want to hear. That's not going to hurt me. I'll be fine. Instead of obeying God and trusting what he sees and what he says about the temptation. So that's where we're headed. It's interesting because in the book of Corinthians, it actually talks about the book of Numbers. And it says, these things, talking about the book of Numbers all happen to them as examples, examples for us, for our admonition. So as we read this book, you can know how to stand. And when you think you stand and temptation comes your way, we don't want you to fall. No temptation has overtaken you except that's common to man. Therefore, God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. This is what God wants us to learn from the book of Numbers. He wants us in the first four chapters to really understand what it means to count on God's presence in the center of your wilderness. So I'm going to cover four chapters today. The book of Numbers, we're going to start going a little bit fast because the the forest is actually as important as the trees. And seeing how all these things chunk together, I think, shows you the main point. Then we'll slow down when the narratives start in about two weeks. What does it look like for us to put God's presence in the center of our wilderness? Let's look at chapter 1 and 2. It begins by talking about what it means to count on God's presence. He's going to put this tabernacle, the symbol of his presence, right in the center of his community. So the book of Numbers opens and says, God spoke to Moses in the wilderness. Can he speak back in Egypt? Can he speak over by the river? Can he speak at 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 the luxury house? No, God speaks in wilderness. And the Hebrew doesn't call this the book of Numbers. It calls it the book of in the wilderness. Because the first three words in the Hebrew are in the wilderness. And here in the wilderness of Sinai, God speaks. God moves. God prepares. He says, I want you to count the people. Number the people. So they do. Because remember, they're about to go to battle. They're about to take on the promises of God in the promised land. And in doing so, they're going to have to battle some giants and battle some fortified cities in preparation for that. So they number everybody. 
And they number everyone who's able to go to war to get a sense of kind of what their battle lines are. Three million people have come out of Egypt. Time to organize, to prepare for God's promises. God wants us to count. God wants us to be organized. God wants us to organize our life around him in the center of our community. Then he says, I want you to pick some leaders. Leaders you can count on and leaders that will teach you how to count on God's presence. Now, to understand this, what seems like a rather laborious list of names, it's actually easy to think of it this way. The land will eventually be divided amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. Asher, Manasseh, Naphtali, Zebulun, Reuben, Benjamin, Simeon, and Judah. So all he's doing here is saying, guys, we're going to organize the three million of us based on whose great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather are you? And so he's basically dividing the three million people up into 12 groups, and then he's going to put a leader in charge whose job is to help the people center on God as they go into wilderness, as they head into battle. So you'll see these names mentioned. It repeats it over and over again. So these are the names of the men who stand with you. These are your leaders, the people who are going to help you count on God. From the tribe of Reuben, Eleazar. From the tribe of Simeon, Shemuel. And on and on. You see all 12 tribes are mentioned and who's in charge, who's the, the new point person from Gad, from Dan, from Naphtali. Then he summarizes by saying, these are the chosen from the congregation, leaders of the father's tribes, heads of the divisions. These are the leaders that are going to help us learn how to center our life on God and count on him. Then he says, and I want to orient the way you even think about community around my presence. I want you to actually organize every tribe, where you stand, where you live, where you set your camp up, based on how it's aligned to my presence in the center of your life. So what he's going to do is he tells Moses and Aaron, assemble the people this way, some toward the east, some toward the west, some toward the north, and some toward the south. So they do. They assemble the people, number the people, and as God commanded Moses, so he numbered the people in the wilderness of Sinai. And preparing for God's promises. But now it gets kind of strange. Why does God care so much about who stands where? See, from the children of Reuben, they numbered from 20 years old and over. Who's ready to go to war? From the tribe of Simeon. Let's number it up. Here's how many people. They're ready to go to war. Where do you stand? Where do you go? Here's the numbers. A whole bunch of counting. Then ultimately, he tells the people... To orient themselves, not to the angle, but specifically north, south, east, and west. And he says, even though there's three tribes to the west, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin, I want to make sure Ephraim's the point person, and Dan's the point person to the north, and and Reuben's the point person to the south, and headed toward the east, orient yourself toward the sun. Jesus comes back in the east. Um, The sun rises in the east. It's just this orientation toward God. I want you to have the point person be Judah. Why all this detail? Who cares except you've got to organize three million people? Wait till you see. So the next thing he says is now that you've got people in the right place, and I've got very specific reasons why, he says, I didn't include the Levites. It's the only tribe I didn't include. I'm going to have one group of people whose job is to, they're going to camp right around my tabernacle, and they're going to lead people into forgiveness, into God's law, into learning how to find forgiveness when you get off track. They're going to camp right around the tabernacle. That's the Levites. 
And they're going to be in charge over the tabernacle of testimony, over its furnishings, all the things that belong to it. They're going to carry the tabernacle when we move, all its furnishings. They're going to tend to it. They're going to teach us and help us all find forgiveness and learn God's word. When the tabernacle moves forward, Levites take it down. Their job is to camp around the tabernacle of testimony. All right, so then God says, and by the way, while you're there, I want you to plant a flag of my presence, a very specific flag in different locations. So think about that. Your whole life is centered around God's tabernacle. If you're in the tribe of Dan, hey, how do I get to Judah? Well, you, you get to God's, pal- God's place, and then you turn right. You know, if I want to go visit my buddies up in Ephraim, you know, they'll say, hey, go until you smell uh, you know, burning uh, cooking meat from the altar and then turn left. Everything about your life, everything about your family, everything about your community was centered around God's presence. But then he has everybody put up a standard, which is just another name for flag. So think about like uh, King Arthur going into battle with flags. That's the idea you want to think of here when you see the word standard. So whether you've seen it on you know, Game of Thrones, whether you've seen it at King Arthur, or whether you've seen it at like Disneyland, like I parked in Goofy 5, uh, I parked in Donald Duck 7. So part of this was finding your family, finding your community, but there's something far more, far more insightful going on here I want you to discover. And it's for you and for me today. So here's what he says. So the Lord speaks to Moses and Aaron. Every one of the children of Israel is to camp by their own flag, their own standard. And they're supposed to be by the emblems of their own house. They shall camp some distance from the tabernacle of meeting, but very specifically lined up to the east toward the rising sun. I want the standard of the forces of Judah. And on the south side, standard, the flag of the forces of Reuben. All right? Tabernacle will be in the middle when it moves out. Everyone's to be in their place. Everyone's to follow their flag. On the west, the standard of Ephraim. Following their flag. And on the north, tribe of Dan. So everyone camped by their standards. All right, why does he care so much about these flags? What do these flags mean? So picture this camp now with these four flags. So the question is, what's on the flags? That he specifically wanted this flag here and this flag here and this flag here and this flag here. Well, many commentators have talked about this. Let me just give you one from... From 1570. To the east, facing you, Judah was always depicted like a lion, the lion of Judah, the crest and hieroglyphic of his ancestor Judah. Toward the south, Reuben, the symbol depicted a standard of a human head because Reuben was the firstborn and the head of the family. To the west, Ephraim was the head of an oxen because his ancestor Joseph had predicted the famine in Egypt. Seven fat cows, seven skinny cows. Toward the north, Dan had the crest of an eagle, the great foe to the serpents, which had been chosen by the leader in place of a servant. Okay. Did those four symbols mean anything to you? A head, a lion, an oxen, and an eagle. Hundreds of years later, Ezekiel has a vision of what heaven looks like and God's kingdom looks like. Hundreds of years after that, the Apostle John has a vision of heaven and what God's kingdom looks like and what it looks like when God is reigning. And here's Ezekiel's vision. Picture. An ox, 
a head, a lion, and an eagle. Ezekiel's vision of the kingdom of God. As for the likenesses of the faces of these spiritual beings around the throne and room of God, each had the face of a man. Each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side. Each had the, the face of an ox on the left side. And each had the, a face of an eagle on the fourth side. And Ezekiel sees his vision of this giant wheel, God's kingdom. It can move in any direction. It's all-seeing kingdom that sees all things. It goes all places. It moves in all direction. And the kingdom is represented by a, a spiritual being that has the face of a lion. Showing God's reign over the wild animals. The oxen. God's reign over the domesticated animals. Humans. God's reign over mankind. And the eagle. God's reign over the birds of the air. So what God is doing for them is what he wants to do for us. He wants you and I to know that when you are moving through your wilderness, when you're moving through your life, you are advancing the kingdom of God God reigns where you are. God's presence is available to you where you are. His full reigning over all things can be with you in wilderness. Remember the book is called Numbers? The whole time if you track through and add all the numbers up, he's been adding up how many to the north, how many to the south, how many to the east, and how many to the west. So I added it up for you so we don't have to read it all. If the tabernacle is here, there's 108,000 people going this direction. They count the, the, the men going to war. So there's more than that, but that's the, the count. There's 150,000 round about on both sides. 151,000 this direction, 157 this direction, but relatively the same amount. And then there's 186 aimed toward the east as they're marching toward the east. The kingdom of God, with God's tabernacle in the center, God's forgiveness in the middle. And you know what all those numbers might look like if you saw it from the east? There's the ones pointing to the west, but Benjamin, Manasseh, and Ephraim. The ones pointed towards you, Judah, and Issachar, and Zebulun. And then to the north and south, a gigantic cross marching across the wilderness. 1,500 years before they crucified Jesus, hundreds of years before the, before the uh, Romans even invent crucifixion. And God says, as you're marching into your wilderness, the cross goes before you. My kingdom goes before you. My reign, my kingdom is with you. So put my presence at the center of your life, the pillar of fire and the pillar cloud. I am with you in wilderness. So what do we do in that time? What's during that time? I want you to worship me, orient your life around me. Whatever you're going through, worship me. I want you to work, do your daily working activities with my presence as your sense of I'm working for God. I'm working with God. I'm working out of gratitude for God. And prepare for war. We're going into some battles ahead, but I got some promises for you. But preparing for battle, preparing for war means planting my presence, my standard in the center of your life. Now, we do that even today, don't we? We take flags. And it can be very meaningful when a flag is planted in the midst of difficult circumstances. Think Hiroshima. Or think those firefighters who, at 9-11, when the two towers came down, those firefighters took that flag. And where did they put it? 
but they lifted it and they put it up right in the middle of the moment of tragedy and the moment of terrorism. And a a photographer took a picture of that picture and it went around the world of that scene. A reminder that hope can exist in the middle of tragedy. Freedom can still reign when people try and take it away from you. And this standard, this emblem sits right in the middle of wilderness. You ever wondered where the flag came from that those firemen put up that day? Belonged to Shirley Dreyfus and her husband. They owned a dinner cruise that used to cruise around the Statue of Liberty. They had backed into their usual parking spot at the marina when all the building came tumbling down on top of all the boats and everything else, knocking over their little flag on the back of their little dinner cruise boat. The firemen saw the the flag on the ground and they picked it up. They took her little flag and they hoisted it and placed it right there in the center of tragedy as an emblem or standard of hope or freedom. Do you know that three hours later somebody stole it? Stole it. It took her 13 years. She wrote a book called The 9-11 Flag where she had to seek it out, find it, bought it back and brought it back. And she got her flag back. And then she donated the flag to the 9-11 Museum where you can see it today. When the same way God wants us to plant his presence, and sometimes you're like, Chet, I don't feel as victorious as the Hirojima or maybe as victorious as those firemen looked. Sometimes it's like, I'm in the middle of the hospital. I'm in the middle of relational chaos. I'm in the real circumstances I don't want. God, I'm just with what little... With little faith I have, with little energy I have, I'm just saying, God, I am trusting you right here and right now to be my standard. That's what it means to put God in the center of your life. And God, too, had to buy us back and bring us back and redeem us back when we were stolen and taken away to Egypt. And that's what chapter 3 and 4 is about. It's about God not only provides his presence, he provides his provision of a priest and a firstborn. And again, I'm going to explain it before we read it, because I think it'll help you. It gets a little opaque here. Um, and we'll do that for the first three weeks, and then it'll be very clear as we move through the rest of the numbers. Because I want you to count on my provision of both a priest and firstborn. Now, here's what he's going to say. Say, guys, I want you to think back to the Passover. At Passover, when I delivered you from Egypt, there was the last plague where the, the angel of death came over, And if you took the substitute lamb and you put him in your place, you take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorposts of your door, and my judgment would pass over you, and your firstborn would be delivered. They would be spared. I saved your firstborn. And now we are here in wilderness, and I want you to know that I I didn't take your firstborn because I provide a substitute. And the Levites, the tribe of Levi, is going to be your substitute. Your firstborn that should have died, I'm going to take this tribe to myself, the Levites and priests. They're my own special people. And I'm going to use them to teach you how to follow me, how to to find forgiveness in me. But I am taking the Levites, and he counts them all up, 22,000 of them. And they substitute for the firstborn from all the other tribes that should have died. He says, by the way, let's count up how many firstborn would have died had I not saved you. And it's 22,273. 
It's off by about 273. So God says, well, I want you to think about what I've done for you. I redeemed you. I delivered you from Egypt. I rescued you. I helped you. And all your firstborn are alive today because of me. So I want you to, to say thanks by giving a certain amount of shekels for the 273 that are remaining. A way of saying, God, thank you for what you've done. Here's a work to support the Levites and their work. We are so thankful that you delivered us from bondage, that you brought us out here and taught us how to live. So that's what he's going to explain here. I'll read, the, I'll read the passage now. So the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Bring the tribe of Levi near. Present them before Aaron the priest, that they may serve him. The Levites are going to help Aaron's uh, descendants. And they shall attend to his needs and the needs of the whole congregation. They're going to teach everybody how to center themselves on God. And they're going to do the work of the tabernacle. Now behold, I myself have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel instead of taking all of your firstborn, who opens the womb among the children of Israel. Therefore, the Levites shall be mine in a very special way. Because all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself all the firstborn of Israel, both man and beast. They're going to be mine. I am the Lord. So number the children of Levi by their houses, by their families, and you shall number each male from tribe uh, month old and above. And take the Levites instead of the firstborn among the children. The Levites shall be mine, says the Lord. And notice the word redemption shows up all over the place. And for the redemption of the 273 difference between the two numbers, you shall take five shekels for each one individually. You shall take them in the currency of the shekel of the sanctuary and the shekel of the 20 geras. You shall give the money, which was the excess number, to remind you that you were redeemed. Aaron and his son. So Moses took the redemption money, those to whom were over and over, and they were redeemed by the Levites. This isn't a way of buying your way into heaven. This is a way of saying, you know, you know, I get access, you don't. It was saying, God, thank you for redeeming me. And here's a way of giving of my time, my treasure specifically, my talents, to say thank you for your redemption. So I think about the last couple of weeks. I think about how my son could have died. And in gratitude to God for saving my son, You know, it wells up within me a sense of gratitude. God, how can I serve you? How can I say thanks to you? Everything I have is yours. My son is yours. My wife is yours. My family is yours. My car is yours. My home is yours. My money is yours. God, how can I leverage what you've given me to advance this kingdom that's moving through wilderness? That's the idea here. Then he's going to divvy out some, uh, some responsibilities. He's going to say amongst the tribe of Levi, everyone's got a job to do. When you realize what I've done for you, i got some jobs for you. Some of you, the sons of Korath, you're going to be in charge of the, 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 the candlelight, and you're going to be in charge of the incense altar, and you're going to be in charge of the table of showbread. you got some, some work to do. The sons of, of Gershon, you're in charge of actually leading people through the worship experience of the altar and things like that. And the sons of Merari, I want you to make sure that every time we move, you've got to pull up the beams and you know, kind of build everything. They're kind of the builders and construction crew for the tabernacle each time. And this idea is that when you've been redeemed by God, when he's in the center of your life, you look around and say, how can I serve? How can I work? How can I take God's kingdom and love and serve and work to do his work around me? That's the idea. Here's how he says it. 
Serve and work because you've been redeemed. The Lord spoke to, uh, to Moses and Aaron and said, Take a census of the sons of Korath from among the children, and I want them to enter the service to do the work in the tabernacle meeting. They're, they're in charge of the work. And, and specifically, everybody from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old. They're to carry service and move the holy articles. Take a census of the sons of Gershom by their father's house, by their families, from 30 years old all the way to 50, and you shall number them. And their job is to perform the service, to do the work in the tabernacle. Third group, the sons of Moriah, their job is to carry all the service of the tabernacle meeting, the boards of the tabernacle, the bars, the pillars, and the sockets, and put it all together. So Moses numbered them, and everyone had a place. What does it look like for all of us to put God at the center of our life and say, I want to serve, I want to do my part, where's there a need, and how can I be part of it? It's been amazing to see the last couple of weeks the ways in which people have prayed. People in our church who are praying for our friends, praying for friends, and, and people bringing meals to, to us as a family and to other people in our church. I heard a story uh, last year about a family who's got a special needs child and just how meaningful it is that their son feels like they have a friend. Because we have a high school, high school student who volunteers his time not just to kind of fill in on Sunday, but to be a friend to the special needs kid who just loves seeing his friend at church. This teenager has organized his vacations around not missing out on the opportunity to serve and to love and to encourage and to create presence, God's presence, in a little room in the hallway. What if you were so grateful for what God's done for you? So thankful for how he's redeemed you and delivered you that you thought every day, how do I love my spouse out of thankfulness to God? How do I love my parents? How do I love my kids? How do I love my community? How about at Horizon? What kind of work's going on around here, Chad? How can I help? How can I be help advancing the kingdom as people need the kingdom of God in wilderness more than ever? What can I do? How can I help? Where can I get involved? The book of Numbers is about how we can count on God's presence in the center of our lives. So here's my question to you. What does it look like for you in your current circumstances, whether it's a good wilderness or a challenging wilderness or a testing wilderness, what does it look like for you to count on God's presence in the center of your life right here and right now? Oh, I know you wish your circumstances were different. I do too. But what if your circumstances aren't going to change for a little bit, but you can choose to plant that flag and say, God, I'm counting on you. I am trusting you. I am pursuing you. Last two weeks, nine days in the hospital, my wife and I are praying with Quinn and tickling his hand over and over again, trying to keep him from yanking cords off and tubes out, and very, very difficult. And in the middle of that, we got all kinds of people in our room, especially at night. It's like trying to sleep in a room full of geese. Somebody's fluttering around, drop my phone, and and then, oh, Mr. Hovind, sorry to wake you up again. Um, So my wife and I are swapping off every night, and and there's all kinds of people in the room, and they have these amazing conversations, you know, watching a child suffer is so hard, and we're talking to this woman who came from an Indian background and wasn't really religious practicing, but she came from a Hindu background. We started talking about the problem of evil, and I said, well, you know, there's, <laughs> the problem of evil is kind of theoretical, but right here it's real practical, right? Why is this happening? I said, if you're an atheist, the answer is that DNA neither knows nor cares, 
And in a world of blind chance, bad stuff happens, but good's never going to be rewarded and bad stuff's never going to be held account. And, and the answer that atheism gives to the problem of evil is not ever. I said, if you're, you know, come from a Hindu background, and she, she was, I said, then the reason my son is suffering is because of the wheel of karma. He deserves it. Maybe not what he did in this life, but in the last life. She's like, well, that sounds horrible. I'm like, yeah, it sounds horrible, doesn't it? So the Bible doesn't teach karma. The suffering's your fault. The Bible teaches that suffering's the result of a broken creation. There once was a world that was good, and it didn't have pneumonia, and it didn't have sickness, and it didn't have pain, and we long for that world. We crave that world. We, we've never seen that world, but we can imagine that world. And in the meantime, God says, not yet. I'm not going to fix it yet, but God entered the world, and he suffered and he felt betrayal. And Jesus knows what it's like to have his cousin beheaded unjustly, John the Baptist. He knows what it's like to walk through wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights. I said, and God came into the world and, and he came to teach us that we need forgiveness and we need deliverance from this world. And then Beth, Beth jumped in and started explaining the gospel and, and you know, what it meant that Jesus loves us and died for us and paid for our sins. And, and I jumped back in and talked about how God was going to come again. This time is, last time is forgiver, next time is fixer. And she says, I've never heard that before. I'm like, well, that's the main message of the Bible and that's the, just a little piece of the hope we have even in the middle of this circumstance that God is here he knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to go through challenges. And, and he's, he's available to us. It was another night. I was spending the night that night. And every night when Quinn goes to bed, one of our traditions that we do every night with Quinn is we kiss him on the, on the forehead. And he goes, I love you. And he kind of repeats, I love oh. And then uh, we'll sing over him. And so that night, I put my hand on his chest as I always do. I was praying for healing and praying for help and praying for strength for me and for Beth and for Quinn. Then I started singing a song that I sing all the time at night when he goes to bed. All right, buddy, you ready to sing? Sing. Jesus loves me, this I know. He'll fill in the last word. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones. One of the helpers who was sitting next to him for the night, uh, she must have been a Christian because as I was singing, she jumped in. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. It became this beautiful duet. In fact, since she was singing, it actually became beautiful for the first time because she was singing to me. <laughs> and it was just such a beautiful moment of just seeing people working, right? Doctors, nurses doing the work to pump out a half a gallon of gack for my son to save his life. Prayers, people who didn't believe in God, people who did believe in God, God's presence coming together. And that was just one little way in which we were trying to put God's presence in the center of our wilderness. And I want you to know, I don't know how long your wilderness is going to last. I don't know if it's going to be two-year prep like it was for the Israelites. But here's what I do know. God speaks in wilderness. God's presence is in wilderness. God shows up in wilderness. And God is preparing you for promises this year, for a promised land he has for you. So don't give up. 
hold the standard high that you're trusting in him. And you have to kind of, God, I have faith, but very little faith. Plant that flag and count on God's presence in the center of your life this year that he would be faithful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your love. For each person here today, Father, who's facing a a wilderness, God, they would reach out and find you to be faithful. Find your son Jesus and that cross to be the very essence of who you are and what they need. And God, that you would remind them that you love them. Remind them that you are their first, that you're, you see us as firstborn. That you made the sacrifice for us. You're the, you're the Passover lamb. You are the deliverer. You are the emblem. You are the presence. You are the ark. You are the altar. You are all things that we need. We give you the glory and trust you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for being here today. We're going to continue our journey through Numbers next week. And if you would like some prayer, um, there's some folks at the uh, hearth room uh, to pray or answer any questions. Otherwise, we'll see you next week. Thank you for your prayers and support for us. We appreciate it.